Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to get the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to tell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm really good job. I'm really, 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 why am I here? Because I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself. I've started or helped start at least nine different businesses and counseled lots of businesses as part of my law and consulting practices. And I wish I could tell you I've made no mistakes, but that would be flat out a lie because I have made plenty So my passion here at The Savvy Entrepreneur is to help find resources and share stories to inspire entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs. If you would like to be a guest on the show, you've got an issue or a challenge, just want to call and shoot the breeze, you can email me anytime, dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. The show will be better for your input, I promise. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our topic and our guest for this morning. Our topic is may not sound very sexy, but it's pretty darn important. Whether you have a contractor or actually an employee, contractors, as we refer to them often in 1099s, which is the form you file, you'll hear more about that in just a minute. And with us today in the studio to discuss some of the issues related to that is John Sartoris, who is the principal of the Sartoris CPA Group. So full disclosure, I'm a client of the firm, have been for a long time. John gives very practical, prompt, and to-the-point advice, which I always appreciate. The Sartors Group has been providing tax advice to local area businesses and individuals for, what, 30 years, John? Yeah, probably a little bit more than that. Yeah, the time flies. Time sure does fly. Yeah. And when you get older, it flies faster. Uh, That's not good. I don't (laughs) want to hear that. Well, so John himself is a native of Chicago. He grew up in Highland Park. He's a graduate of Drake University in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, and he has been a CPA for a lot of years. Uh, He worked, started out with his career working in the tax department at Walgreens. He worked for a couple of other CPA firms locally and then decided to start out and set up his own firm where he's been for more than 30 years, More than 30 as he years. says. Yep. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks Thank you for so having much. me. Thank you so much for being here. To start out, I'd like to just talk just a little bit about you and your firm. I mean, how did you decide to become a CPA and a tax accountant anyway? Okay, well, if we step back to the how did I become a CPA, it really wasn't my idea to begin with. It was actually probably my wife's more than anything else. <laughs> you know, she pushed me and, and, uh, and knew that I could be better than the lazy bum that I was growing up. And 
when I passed the exam, it was a lot of hard work, but it was fun. And it took uh, the better part of three months of intense studying, even though I had gone through college and and uh, came out with an accounting degree. The questions and, and problems that you face in real life and in the CPA exam are entirely different than what they can possibly teach you in school. Oh, uh, at, at one point in my career, working for one of the larger firms, I did speak at uh, graduation uh, at the at uh, Wisconsin Parkside. I spoke at the College of Lake County before during some some job fairs and basically tried to relate to the people that were studying accounting that even though it isn't sexy, it can be fun. And, and virtually everything that you learn in school, you probably need to forget once you get into <laughs> real life and actually learn how to apply that's probably, it. That's probably good news to some <laughs> students that are out there, right? Oh, I think it is. You know, I, at least when I went to school at Drake, the first year of accounting was very simple. The second year of accounting, I'd, I'd bet that 80% of the, of the people who were in the class dropped out before the end of the class because it was that difficult. And then it got easier again. Well, how did you decide to set out on your own? I mean, you're an entrepreneur yourself, really. Well, I guess, but I never really think of myself that way. I, I think of myself as, as being able to uh, you know, help people and take care of people at the same time provide a living for myself and my family. Now, how I actually started out probably was because I really don't think I fit anywhere else. And if, if you look at like what my history was before I started our own firm, I did work for Walgreen Company, which was a large, large corporation. I went and worked for a very small CPA firm in Libertyville years ago, which only had uh, the owner and myself and uh, uh, a computer person. I worked for a little bit larger firm in Waukegan that had 18 or 20 people. Then I worked downtown in, the, in Chicago in the Prudential Building with a large international accounting firm. And so I went the full circle, starting from a large organization back to a small, you and then back up to a large. You tried them all. I well, tried them all. Except and, for the government. Right, maybe. except for the government, right? I don't think I would ever want to do that, really. Although I've heard it's good. And as I went back to the large company, I just found that I really didn't fit anywhere, because I really wanted to be on my own. Being an entrepreneur or being your own employee or you're self-employed allows you the freedom. Now, a lot of people don't accept that freedom and the responsibility that goes with it. So they it accept the be, freedom. It can be scary. Right. And and the one thing that I did learn working for one of the large accounting firms at a seminar one time, the managing partner said, partner's work is any type of work that needs to be done, whether or not it's doing a tax return or whether it's uh, emptying the garbage or washing the dishes that are in the kitchen. You know, you do everything. And, and that's really true. I found myself as my own employee or as a self-employed person or as owner of a small, owner of a small business. You're, the, we bo- are, you're the boss. You're the boss. So, you're the boss of you. Right. So every, everything that, that happens, you're responsible for. I found myself working at 2 o'clock in the morning because that's the time I woke up. I find myself at home watching TV at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because I didn't feel like working the rest of the day. But I do have the responsibility and the obligation to my clients to get the work done and get it done timely. So right. I'm available all the time. Sometimes my time just doesn't coordinate with normal people's times. I totally get that. And I think that's probably true of lots of entrepreneurs. Well, so to the topic at hand today, I think it's an issue that, as we were talking before the show, a lot of companies get wrong. The reality is a a lot of small business owners are faced with a decision at some point. And we'll talk about small businesses mostly, Mm -hmm. but... Obviously, big companies have this issue, too, probably just as much or maybe more than small businesses. But I think a lot of small business owners, they're faced with a a decision at some point of realizing they need help. It's pretty difficult, as you said, to be everything when you're starting a business. And at some point, you start to realize you need help with things. That's correct. Either because 
it's not the highest and best use of your time and it's more efficient to find somebody or you, you frankly just don't know about it. Whether it's building a website or doing your taxes or helping with legal stuff or maybe just somebody who can help you do different pieces of the business that you don't have time for or you're not very good at. I think lots of business business owners at some point say, I need help. I need help. And so the choice becomes really, do I hire somebody as a contractor or do I find an employee to do that? And I'm not sure everybody knows exactly what the difference between the two really is. They probably think they do, but maybe from a tax perspective, they're not. So talk a little bit about what the difference is between the two from a pretty high-level perspective. Okay, okay. I think generally, yeah, I I agree, Doris, that a lot of people don't understand the difference, and, and that's probably why sometimes things get done wrong. They think that if somebody comes in and just works part-time or works uh, for a week or, or works for 10 days or or whether we're just trying somebody out to see if they're good enough to stay in the company or not, they want to con- consider those people to be outside people, self-employed uh, subcontractors or 1099 people and not employees. If they're employees, then that opens up a whole realm of other requirements that the small business has to go through. They have to pay payroll taxes. They have to uh, do regular salary. They have to uh, match these these expenses. They sometimes have uh, health insurance that they have to cover or, or or workers' compensation insurance. There's all things that come up as well as uh, trying to provide other benefits that are required for employees. Every state, well, Illinois now, the, the minimum wage is $9.50 an hour now. I think it just changed on January 1st. Maybe it's nine yeah. and a quarter. And it's scheduled to go up to $15 an hour. And it's going to go up in increments over the next few years. This is an expense that, as an employee, that's a minimum that you have to pay people. And I'm not saying that that's enough for people to live on, but it's a minimum that people have to pay. Small businesses sometimes will want the person to work a little bit and then not work where the employee or the individual might want to work on a more consistent basis. So generally, a lot of people don't understand that anybody who works for you that you control, that you tell when to come in, that you tell how much you're going to pay, that you pay them on a regular basis, that you have them do work in a a manner that you want, that you have them work for you using your tools or your computers or your desk, uh, you provide an office space for them or some, some place to sit, they're going to be employees, or at least the governments are going to think that they're employees, because you control them. And that's probably the overriding factor of anything. You control them. An employee, at least in Illinois, Illinois is a no-fault fire and hire state. So if you were dissatisfied with your employee, you could theoretically fire that employee. The employee could leave if he, if he doesn't want to work there and get a job someplace else. But the reality, if he's a subcontractor, a 1099 person, As the word subcontract says, there should be a contract, and this contract is a requirement. This contract is an obligation. This contract may may run over a period of time, and generally the job that's required in that contract isn't finished until that contract has finished, whether the job is done or whether the time has elapsed. So you really don't have the ability to fire somebody in a contract where you do with an employee. Interesting. Well, I think there are a lot of benefits to clearly to employers – you alluded to some of them. I can say from a legal perspective, there's there's other ones. You need to have an employee handbook if you have an employee. Absolutely. You need to do, in many states, certain kinds of mandatory training like uh, discrimination and har- anti-harassment, um, other kinds of things. And, you know, as we were talking about before the show, 
I think hiring an employee has a different feel to it for a lot of business owners. They don't like the idea of actually firing someone. So there might be no fault firing, but the fact is telling somebody they're fired is harder and more difficult, I think, just for us as human beings than to tell somebody, yeah, you know, well, we're we're getting rid of contractors right now, so no hard feelings, but, you know, off you go because you have a business to run and I'm sure you have other things to do and other clients. I think the other piece that I've seen is it offers businesses a lot of flexibility. So you don't have to hire a full-time person, maybe. You can say, well, I don't know how things are going to go. I know I need some help with this area here. I'm going to bring somebody on part-time to do this. And it's good for them because they can do part-time for other people, too. Or, as you say, I can try this employee out and this person out and see if they're really a good fit. So there's, I think there's a lot of benefits to it but obviously you know there are some things that need to be evaluated so talk about the the factors you you mentioned that there's a presumption that you probably have an employee in many cases talk about some of the factors that you need to look at that that businesses may not fully think about as they're bringing some of these people into their organization okay well, as I mentioned, I think uh, the degree of control that you have, or if you exert any control over an, over an individual, is part of uh, the the process of working for you. Will lead you to to having an employer employee relationship. Well, what, what does that mean, having control over well, them? I as, mean, we don't control any other human being. Right? No, but as but, I said, so. uh, as I said, you know, you, you you have certain hours that they have to be at the uh, at the shop, certain uh, ways and processes that are intact in your business that you want them to follow, that you require them to follow. Uh, you have certain ways that uh, maybe they, they should dress for presentation for your customers. You have certain ways that they should handle employee, handle other relationships with other employees. You provide them, as I said, with tools that they can work with, whether it be a computer or a desk or, uh, or mm, mechanics tools in, in an auto shop. You give them those. A subcontractor brings all this stuff along with him, and he basically works on the projects that he wants to work on or that he's assigned to, and he works when he wants to work. Oftentimes, uh, a subcontractor in, in a small business might really only have one business that he's working for at a time. Right. Uh, and, and that, in and of itself, leads to the relationship being more of an employer-employee relationship. Like in my business, if I have, let's say, if I have 800 tax returns that we do during the course of the year, whether they be business or personal... I'm working for more than one person. I'm working for 800 people. Right. So it, it's very doubtful that any one of these people has control over me or the relationship is that tight you know, that I would be an employee of theirs. On the other hand, if I were to hire somebody to come into our office, even if this person came in during tax season only and worked only certain hours that were convenient for him and picked up tax returns that I had there that needed to be done and worked on whichever ones he wanted to work on, I think he'd still be classified as an employee because he's going to be working on my my, my computers. He's going to be using my tax software. He'll use uh, the, the people in my office to accumulate and assemble the tax returns that need to go out He'll the door. He'll follow right. the processes right. that so he's you following, established right. He'll follow so the process. consistency right. in how the tax returns are done. Right, so that. even though he might think that he's working his own hours, he's working his own however long he wants to work. And even if I were to, to compensate him as a percentage of what he of what he did as opposed to on an hourly basis, 
he's still going to be considered an employee of mine, at least by the governments. And, and you, you never know when that's going to happen. You never know if it's going to happen. I think that a lot of small businesses, one, they don't really know the difference or know that most people would be, re, would be employees. They aren't even aware that they have to do anything to have an employee. Yeah. And, you know, the, the risks, I think, is something that we can get into later on. You know, the risks of not doing it right can be extreme. Well, before we, t- we will talk about that, and I think that's really important because the consequences can be pretty eye-popping. Let's go back, though. You were talking about there are different tests. So that's the control. You mm-hmm. talked about the control test. What are some of the others? Well, one of the other, one of the other things is, is the extent of personal services that somebody might provide. If, uh, if they're providing a personal service to your customers or if, uh, if, if, like I said before, if they're doing things in a certain way to benefit your customers, then that's something that you've established, that you've set up, that is essentially another control issue, but it's another way that they would be considered to be employees. So g- give an example or two of that maybe. Well, boy, it's difficult to say on a, just on an individual basis. In our business, let's say, or if you're working in a, in a, in a, in a mechanic shop or in an auto repair shop, how courteous you are to the customers that come in. Uh, you might wash their cars for them. You might do different personal services that are, that are customarily something that your business would provide specifically to, to differentiate yourself from your competition. So these are our processes and procedures that you've established for your business that now you're requiring these other employees or outside contractors to, uh, to fulfill. Again, then that leads them to, to more being employees and subcontractors because they're following your processes. Is that what they refer to as the ordinary course of business for a business? Yeah, I would think that could be generally called the ordinary course of business, how you normally operate and the procedures that you, you know, that you follow. So I think, I think the classic example that I was reading about is, let's say you hire somebody to paint your office and you're a bank, let's say. So painting is not in the ordinary course of your business. No, that's it's correct. A, it's a service right. that you need from time to time, and so you hire somebody to do it. It's certainly not integral to operating a bank, for example. But if you're a painting company and you hire part-time painters to help you with different jobs, right. that's the ordinary course of bit. Painting is now the ordinary course of a painting business. That really is a perfect example where, where you're hiring people to do the service that you provide to your customers generally. When we hire a painter to paint in our office or, or a company or to, uh, to put up blinds in our windows and things, we're not the only entity that they're doing it for. And, and that's generally not what we do. We don't paint and we don't, you know, install blinds. This other company has employees or subcontractors who might do that, and that could raise a problem in question, but they're not going to be our employees. One of the other tests might be, if the people that you're hiring are, are in another company themselves and, and are not individuals, if they have employees, if, if they have other customers, if they're working for 30 or 40 different people on a regular basis, then they can't possibly be your employee. Yeah. They're, the, they're their own employee. They're their right. outside contractors. It's well, and, and I think your business example is probably a pretty perfect one, actually, because let's say you have a software business and... You need your taxes done. Well, having your taxes done by a firm like yours is not really, it only happens maybe once a year or maybe four times a year you help them file various forms that they need to file. But 
it's not a recurring part of the business. And as you say, you have maybe 800 clients. And so, you know, it's pretty difficult for anybody to claim that the Sartora CPA group is actually an employee of this software company because it's a, it's a small business expense in the scheme of things. And you have tons of other clients. Right, right. One of the other ways you know, to differentiate between an employee and, a, and an outside contractor or a subcontractor might be that the, uh, the, outs- the employee really doesn't have risk of loss. He receives his paycheck and that's all he gets. If he doesn't do a good job, he either gets terminated or gets talked to, but he'll still receive his paycheck. As a subcontractor, if things go wrong, you can be responsible for additional expenses that, that might go beyond the cost of what the project might be to try and remedy the problem that arose or, or satisfy your, your customer. So there's risk involved. An employee doesn't have that risk. There might also be uh, a way to differentiate in an employee situation. If somebody comes in as an outside service person or an out, a subcontractor to you and you pay them on a regular basis and you pay them uh, on an hourly rate, then that really constitutes an employee because employees are paid that way. A subcontractor might get paid at the end of the project or might get paid in installments throughout the project. If you were to hire someone to, uh, to, to work on your bathroom, he might need money up front to buy material, and then he might need a payment of 25% midway through the job or 30% midway through the job, but you're not paying him on a regular basis, on an hourly basis, based on how, many to- how much work he actually performs. So there's a couple of different ways, and, and again, that kind of relates to control and how you pay him and things, and, and which brings us back to whether or not they're employees or not. Well, so that may sound very black and white, but I think the reality is is there are lots of kind of gray situations. And sometimes a situation that maybe is black and white at the beginning evolves over time to something that's a lot more gray. Just one example I can think of, and, you know, it's with a, a company that I worked with. They needed some help designing a website. Okay, so guy who did their website it was pretty clear the design of the website and getting it up and running was a fixed fee project basis and that was what this person was going to do but then it turned out they needed help maintaining the website and then also the person said well I can help you with some of your social media stuff too and before you know it this person now was billing the company on an hourly basis and it was a large percentage of what this person's monthly income was. So at that point, is that person an employee or are they still a contractor? As you said, that's kind of a gray area, but I think the more involved that person gets with the company, the more it looks like an employee relationship. Now, in a situation like that, if that person who's working as a subcontractor incorporates their business or has other employees or or has other clients that they do spend time on, it, it's it's entirely possible to one for one person in in a group to provide a lot of services to one individual client. I've provided services to some clients of ours that that are a lot more either in an hourly basis or just a uh, responsibility basis than I do for other clients. And just because I spend more time with one client than I do with another client doesn't make me an employee of that one big client uh, because I do have other clients that I work for. One of the things that might differentiate also is that uh, if, if the business that, that I have or that I purport to have really is a business. If I have uh, if I have business cards, if I advertise, if I am on social media, if I have an office, as opposed to working out of my home, those things might 
give issue to me being a legitimate outside contractor for this person. Yeah. So even if I do spend a lot of time working on some one particular customer, if I hold myself out to be available to the public, I think that also leads to uh, me being a subcontractor, not an employee. Yeah. Well, I think it it's pretty dependent on the circumstances. It absolutely you, is dependent you, on the circumstances. As you alluded yeah. to. And, of course, we have to do the disclaimer here. As a tax advisor and a lawyer, we're not providing tax or legal advice. But, but I think it's often a blend of tax analysis and legal analysis. And I think probably the bigger issue comes up with not not so much the person who you pay on a monthly basis to maintain your website or the person who does some posting for you on social media but when you start to as particularly as a small or startup business and you start to bring on people who are doing a key function for the company so sales is classic right i mean you can't have a I, i don't know if you can hire can you hire any kind of sales help and still call them a contractor. Well, I think you can. You know, in fact, I can relate a client of ours that uh, operates in, in many different states and uh, they have salespeople in different territories throughout the country. And these salespeople have their own businesses and they represent other businesses as well as the company that I represent. You know, so in that case, they are subcontractors. They are outside contractors. They visit the clients, you know, over a particular area. They try and solicit work. They work the hours that they want to work. They get compensated based on how productive they are, not on an hourly basis. And, and they do work for other people besides my particular client. Right. So, so it is possible for an outside salesperson to be a, a subcontractor. So it's unlikely I, for somebody locally, I think, promoting it that way. Well, and yeah. that's perfect segue. I was going to ask about the other extreme, which is a small company <clears throat> is looking for some sales help. You've got a guy who's between jobs and he says, sure, I'll help you be your part-time salesperson. He gets a business card because, of course, as a salesperson, you're thinking that gives him, makes him look more like part of the company, so he has more legitimacy when he goes out to the customers. You tell him, here's the company computer. I think computers, at least in my experience, are are really challenging for employees because, or employers, because, yes, it'd be nice for them to provide their own equipment, but there's so much in terms of software and data security that employers are thinking about today. And so you give him an email address, a company email address, so he seems like he's really part of the company. And I think at that point you may very well have yourself an employee. I agree with you. I think at that point you have yourself an employee. And uh, he may not want to think of himself as an employee, or he might, depending on his particular situation. One of the, and maybe we should talk about this, one of the, one of the benefits of being an, an outside person instead of an employee particularly has to relate to uh, the new tax law that changed a couple of years ago in 2018. Generally, a lot of people uh, who have been employees or were salespeople that were employees would be allowed to write off certain expenses that they had. Yeah. Now those their expenses, car, for right? Example. Their car, for example, absolutely. That's a pretty sweet it's a one. big one, right? Right. And now, as an employee, as a W two employee of a company, you can't write off that expense any longer. Yeah. But if you're a self employed person, my thousand dollar a month Beamer lease right, is right, no longer right, right, deductible. Right, right. <laughs> what a bummer! <laughs> That's why my car only cost me a hundred dollars a month. No, but uh, <laughs> uh, but you're absolutely right. Now, if I were 
not an employee and were my own business and were a subcontractor, I would include my income on a form on the tax return called a Schedule C. And I would be able to write off my business expenses associated with that. Now, whether or not I would legitimately be entitled to that, to do that, because the question of whether or not I'm really an employee or a subcontractor, that's, that's an issue for another time or a, discuss, a topic for another discussion, whether, whether you're doing it right or not. But there are reasons that that outside person might want to continue to be an outside person. It does give you, as you alluded to, in your own situation, a certain amount of freedom to be able to say, I'm not coming here Tuesday to your office. I have to take my child to the doctor or I want to go to my child's softball tournament or I have something else I want to do and Tuesday's my day to do that. Right. And that's okay. Right. And, you know, as you, as you said, you know, if, if you want to do that, if you want to take the time off, if you want that freedom, and if you have a project that you're required to perform and complete, and you have that project has a deadline date of a month from now, you know that you've got to perform and get that project done a month from now. It doesn't matter whether you do it today or whether you're doing it tomorrow as long as you meet the obligations of that deadline. Right. Whereas as an employer, as somebody working, you know, for a company, again, if we talk about social media, where you're posting uh, regular commentary on Twitter or on uh, Facebook or or any of the uh, social media sites that might be out there now, uh, you're probably going to be working on that all throughout the day, posting things. Again, yeah. you're working all day. You're working for that person. You're you're an employee in that situation. Yeah. So how common do you think the mischaracterization is? I, I personally have seen a whole lot of it, small companies, even really big companies. I, I think that the misclassification is... A lot. There's there's a lot of misclassification. And you say small companies and big companies. I think primarily we're talking about small companies at this broadcast, but large companies too. I can relate another story of a client that was working for a large company in, in web design or, or computer-related subjects like that and uh, was, was let go from that company. And he's hooked on with another large company, a publicly traded company, but they don't want to pay him as an employee. Right. They'll pay him as a subcontractor. Uh, so he's gone out and established a, a corporation on his own, and we're going to go through the process of uh, of properly filing tax returns, of doing payroll tax returns, of getting workers' comp insurance, of doing everything right to legitimize that company, his company, and, and treat him as a separate business. Now, he'll hold himself out for other, other companies as well, but primarily he'll probably be working for this large company. And, and again, this is a large company that knows the rules, that should know the rules, that has an HR department, that should know that he really is an employee of that company, but they don't want to treat him like that. So uh, I think in a lot of cases in the small business, it might just be lack of awareness of what the laws and requirements and differences are. Well, I think it, there's that, but I think also the fact that you don't necessarily have predictable revenues. You don't always know early on whether you're going to always need a full-time marketing person or a full-time salesperson, whatever that person might be. And so the 1099 contractor for all those kinds of companies is a very easy kind of plug-and-play, you know, an easy way to plug resources in here and there. I, sometimes I think convenience is overrides other Consideration. Oh, I agree with that. I think convenience does override like that. And what happens in a situation like that? You're saying that you don't that you have a marketing person and you're paying this person as an outside contractor, and you no longer need that marketing person anymore. If you let them go, what's the first thing that people would do, or should do, or could do when they're let when they're terminated from a job? They go to the unemployment department and they right, collect but, unemployment benefits. Well, but that's a key difference between an employee and a contractor is that 
if you're an employee and you're terminated, you can go to the unemployment office and make a claim for unemployment compensation. If you're a contractor, you're not an employee, and therefore you're not entitled to unemployment compensation abso- if you weren't employed. That's absolutely correct. But what what if you don't really know that you're not as an employee or as the individual? You don't really know whether or not you're entitled to those benefits. So you just go to the unemployment office. The unemployment office. Yeah, why not? Right. right? Why not? Right. I think that's just the American way. <laughs> uh, you know, the unemployment office will look you up and they'll try and match you up with that employer, with that company. And if they don't see your name and social security number and other identifying information as part of their quarterly payroll tax filings and, and payments for unemployment taxes, I don't think that they'll, that the unemployment department will deny you benefits. What they'll do is they'll investigate that company. And, and wonder why or not, why you are or why you weren't or whoever else might not have been listed as an employee. And then that, then that comes to, we've talked about facts and circumstances, I think. It, and it's not just the, the terminated or the irate employee that might turn a business into the government, you know, e- either unwittingly or, or knowingly. Boy, we've been through our share of unemployment audits, and they don't come up too often, but we might get one or two every couple of years. And I remember speaking with what, one of the what, what triggers those, by the way. Well, that, that's what I was just going to say. What you know, I remember speaking with one of the uh, one of the auditors one time, and uh, and he told me that he came across this company at church. And I asked him about it. What? Church, what are you talking about? And as he's sitting there at church listening to the sermon, you know, he's flipping through the, the weekly bulletin. And uh, churches go out and they advertise and they try and br- you know bring companies into advertising their sure. bulletins as a, as a source of revenue. And he's looking at this, at this company. It's a little small construction company. So he remembered or took the, you know, the bulletin back with him. Next time he was in the office, he started searching for that company and finding that that company didn't file payroll tax returns or wasn't listed you know, on their, in their uh, uh, database. So he went out and made a call, and that led to, oh, you do have employees, or you do have people that are that you're saying are subcontractors, and they should be employees. Oh, and, and that's, my goodness. Yes, there's odd ways that this can happen. Uh, well, I suppose competitors can get kind of cranky, too. Well, absolutely, because, sure. Because when you think about it, if you're characterizing the people who do the work for your company as a as a contractor, you're not paying all those benefits that you're talking about. Maybe you're not paying them minimum wage because you don't have to. Maybe you're not paying their payroll taxes or their uh, unemployment taxes, but your competitor is trying hard to comply with all that stuff, and they're incurring all those costs. So, you know, they might, I suppose. Oh, no, absolutely. Decide. It could be the competitors, right? Because, you know, uh, they might look at you and think that you have an unfair advantage because you can charge a, if you're doing construction work, for example, you can charge a lower hourly rate because you don't have all those overhead costs. Not that you shouldn't have those overhead costs, but you don't. Right. And, and they might look at jobs that, uh, that they just can't get, uh, either because they are trying to do things properly. And it could be their own fault. They might not be as efficient as you in your operation. It could also be looking at, similarly, you could look at the differences between whether you're a unionized shop or a non-union shop. Because there's benefits that union employees receive over and above what a non-union shop might be. And that leads to cost competition. So it could be situations like that. I think in a lot of cases, whenever these, situations come out or whether you're under audit for something like this or whether an audit does come out because of you, I think you have to probably put over in the column of dumb luck more than anything else. I I don't think I hope people listening process that. That's a pretty important point you just made, which is that you don't get caught is probably just dumb luck. Right. I I think that's true. I think eventually you will get caught or or something will happen. Something will happen that triggers it. And it's better to do it right because if you, if you do get caught and you are audited and you are found to have 
employees and not subcontractors, the penalties just can be unbelievably severe. Okay, now, so we'll talk about some of the bad things that can happen. You know, we lawyers yeah. and tax accountants always like to tell our clients about terrible things that will happen. But in this case, they're not good, really. Well, you know, if, if we go back in time, you know, when I, when I first started as a public accountant, as a CPA, the penalty for not filing 1099 forms when you should file the 1099 forms was $50. And nobody really policed it. Nobody really seemed to care about it. Now, I don't know if it was really the fact that the government was small, smaller, well, there, there weren't as there many. there weren't as many right, 1099s. There weren't the as many 1099s. The gig economy was not. As it is not. The, right, the, right. Everybody, generally everybody worked for a large company, for a bigger company. They were put on the payroll and taken care of. There weren't the big defined benefit pension plans that, you know, that, that companies had to pay for. Health insurance wasn't nearly as expensive as it is now that companies had yeah. to pay for. You know, so, and, and I'm sure that a lot of you who, who work in a job, work for an employ, work for a company, might have seen your health benefits cut down or, or the fact that you have to contribute to those benefits and pay for those out of your pocket now. Or uh, maybe been eliminated completely. Where if we're talking twenty or thirty years ago, having health insurance at your employer was just common. Everybody got it. I now think, I think that's true for a lot of people who decide to try to do work as an independent contractor. Is they suddenly have visibility to some of those kinds of costs, and it can be pretty eye popping. Oh right! Before we were uh, actually on the broadcast, I mentioned to uh, to Doris, my son who works for a local school district. If you look at the cost of his health insurance alone for his family, and compare that to his salary, you know the cost of health insurance is you know amazing. What what the school district actually pays for him? It's such a fantastic benefit. Now I'm sure it's a nice plan. I'm sure he's got a lot of benefits in that plan. I'm sure it's a better health plan that I have than myself. But still, it's part of his compensation that uh, he doesn't necessarily. He probably thinks about it, but a lot of people don't think about it because it's just it's you're brought up thinking that it's something that you should be entitled to, and, and nowadays you're really not entitled to. I had done just a little quick research before the show, and the statistics that are out there about what the the salary benefit ratio is mm-hmm. salary oftentimes is only somewhere one study said 62 something percent another one was 68 percent so you know take kind of a midpoint 67 percent that means that when you have an employee you're working in a company as an employee you get a w-2 get a paycheck that a third of your compensation on average is benefits. It doesn't even show up in your in your compensation. It's just it's just a benefit for you. It's it's something that you're getting that you're not paying tax on. Right, and, but and it's it's a it's a cost to the company. It's a cost to the company to the employer. And it's something you lose out on and need to think about in when terms you're on of your own. when you're on your own because it's not just about well, a set, if I got this as a person with a salary, and so then I'm going to get this because that's on an hourly basis my salary. You're shortchanging yourself well, by abs- a third. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to I want to you know step back a little bit again because I sometimes when when I'm in a conversation I kind of wander. I think it's part of just my my old mentality. And we were well, talking, I think it's of all the knowledge that you have uh, built thank up. Thank you, but I don't know. Maybe it's just a lot of things trying to come out at the same time. Uh, you know, all trying to get away from me. You know. Try, you you know what I mean? Trying to run away from me. Let me say that. We're talking about penalties and things and how back in the day, it was a small penalty to pay, a small price to pay for not doing a 1099. Nowadays, let me let me try and read something of what I've seen. Not only do you have the issue about having to do the 1099 form and, and prepare it and send it to the government and give a copy to your subcontractor, there's a due date in which 
you have to do that. That has to be done by January 31st of each year. Now, in order to start that process... Can I... I'm going to interrupt just yeah. really quickly, just to make sure people are really clear, because there's a couple things going on here. One is, do you have a 1099 or a contractor versus an employee? Okay. And if you get that wrong, there's some really bad things that are going to happen. Oh, absolutely. The, right. the, and we'll talk about that in a second. The other piece, though, and I think the part you're talking about, I just want to clarify is that let's say you have somebody who truly is a contractor, there are still things that you need to do, and if you don't do them, there are bad things that can happen. That's an excellent, is that, is that that's right? That's absolutely where I'm going. That's an excellent point. You know, and just like an employee, when you receive the W-2, your employer has to give it to you by January 31st. They're supposed to do that at least. Similarly, if you're an outside contractor and you're a 1099 person, they have to give you this form and file it with the government by January 31st again. And uh, if you don't do that as an employer, as a company, the penalties can be severe for not doing that. If you, if you, well, so in other words, when I do a project for somebody and they ask me to fill out, what is it, a W nine? It's a W nine, right? It's That's different a than a W four or right. a W four. A W four okay. is the employee. A W-9 okay. is for the subcontractor. Right. So right. If I, when I'm doing a project for a company, if they ask me to fill out a W-9 form, that's a good thing. That means they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're trying to do it right, absolutely. And that W-9 form will ask a couple of questions. Obviously, it asks your name and address and, and identification number. And your tax And your <laughs> And your tax, tax Right, your tax ID if you have one. And that's an indicator in a lot of cases as to whether or not you are an employee or a subcontractor or not, or an individual or a business. Most businesses have identification numbers, have business identification numbers. It's not required. In certain circumstances, it is, but in a lot of cases, it's not. But that W-9 form will also ask, are you a sole proprietor, which means you're an individual working? Are you an LLC or a partnership, or are you a corporation? What type of corporation are you? You know, So that W-9 form in which you disclose to your employer or, or company that you're working for, you tell them what type of entity you are. And if you say you're an employee, or if you say that you're a, a sole proprietor, an individual, then not that it's wrong because you can be an, an outside person and not be not be a corporation or an LLC. I think that the steps to to validate that are some of the things that we've talked about. You know, determining whether or not these circumstances on a, on a facts and factual basis really apply, and you are an employee or, or a subcontractor. So back to though the requirements, if you're you are a 1099 person. You filled out the W-9 form. Let's say, I mean, there's two paths, really. Mm-hmm. One is you're, you're truly a corporation. You're a C-corp, an S-corp, whatever. Then what happens? Does any, does the employer or does the company you're working for have to do anything else then? It, it depends on, you know, when you fill out that W-9 form and inform the employer what type of entity you are, whether or not they have to do something. The requirements are is that if, a, if, if you pay an individual, $600 or more during the course of the year for personal services that they provide, whether these services are, you know, building a web page or, or doing a tax return for you or, or, or providing any other type of service. And I'm saying not selling a product to you, you know, providing a service, then you have to do a 1099 for that person. If when they fill out a W-9. I, I just want to underscore that because it's really easy to spend $600. Oh yeah. With a sole proprietor who does your Website design? Right. Sure. I'd love to have my website redesigned for $600. Absolutely. Probably it's more right. than that. Right. And that amount oh. has not changed in, my goodness, in years. It's, it's been $600. Right. So. Virtually anybody that, that you bring into work, you're going to pay more than $600 for. Correct. So I just wanted to underscore that point because that's. 
that's a pretty low threshold. It's a very low threshold. So let's say you pay them more than $600, then what? Then you're supposed to, well, let, let me step back a second. For anybody who is an individual or a partnership or an LLC that you pay $600 or more, then as the business, you're supposed to give that person or entity a 1099 form and file it with the, with the IRS. Then they pick that up and report it as taxable income on their tax return. Generally, you do not have to fill out and submit a 1099 form for corporations, whether they're C-corporations or S-corporations, and at some later time we can talk about the differences in those entities. However, if you pay an attorney, no matter how much you pay an attorney, no matter whether the attorney is an S-corporation or a C-corporation, you're still supposed to complete a 1099 form for that attorney. I hope your businesses are listening to that out there because uh, what percentage of the businesses that you work for just out of curiosity, before they've before they've been counseled appropriately by John Sartoris <laughs> and the Sartoris CPA group, what percentage of companies would you say actually know that they need to do that? Boy, you know, if you ask me the question in this way, what percentage of new businesses that we begin our relationship with and, and become a client of ours are doing 1099s before we talk to them and tell them they should be? I'd say the number is close to zero. You know, I, I honestly think because I, I really don't think I really don't think that the the general average person who starts a business realizes that. Now, if they've had counsel before, they should be doing it. Yeah. One of the things that we do is is talk to our clients constantly about that. And in the month of January, particularly, we begin to nag our clients and, and say, you know, is there anybody you've done that you've you know paid more than six hundred dollars to? In the last, let's say, a half a dozen years. On your income tax return, whether it's your, your business schedule C or your rental property schedule E or your corporate tax return or your partnership tax return, the IRS asks two key questions. And, and to paraphrase, the first question they ask is, did you pay anybody during the course of the year that you should have issued a 1099 form to, yes or no? And then the second question after that, did you issue the 1099 form or are you going to do it, yes or no? Uh, and what happens, you start well, to talk about some of the bad things that happen and the old approach of wrist slapping. What happens now if you don't issue a 1099 well, to that? It, the penalties, that the, pen, right, the penalties can be severe, severe. And those questions that the government asks when, when you answer those, this is part of the perjury statement that you have when you sign your tax return, in which you indicate that everything is proper, that you're not lying, that you're not holding anything back. So if you answer those questions wrong or answer those questions as a lie, let's say, then you're putting yourself in a state of perjury. And if you answer those questions and say to the IRS, oh, yeah, we did pay people, but now nah, we're not going to issue 1099 forms to them. I think that in and of itself. Now you've got willful noncompliance. Right, you've got willful noncompliance and you've got their computers just going nuts. You know, because their computers <laughs> just, just look at those answers and say, oh my goodness, we need to look at these people and, and check it out. So you will oh, be honored. So what happens? Well, so, if you so don't, you, you let, let me read you, let me read what, what I, what I'd found. The intentional disregard for not filing a 1099 form is $270 per instance with no maximum penalty for the year. So for example, if you had, uh, 10 people, and you didn't file 1099s for them, and they were subcontractors, that's a $2,700 fine right there. And, and it can just go up. And then if you don't file them timely, the penalty, if you look at this, and it can range from $50 to $270 per 1099. And the maximum that they can charge you during a year is $1,113,000. That would be a that, relatively significant hit to a lot of businesses. I, I think, would that think. Would, that would hurt a lot of companies. Yes, it would. You know, yeah. and, and just for something that, that you're really innocent for. Even if you just did an oops and you figured it out later. Well, that's why, you know, if, if we come across when we're doing a tax return and the situation presents itself that they didn't properly prepare 1099s, 
we will do the 1099s and file them late. You yeah. know, and, and, and do it because it's, it's better to comply and say, Hey, they didn't know. We didn't, we didn't realize. Uh, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness than to, than to, to try and, and just be, uh, uh, negligent and, and not comply with the law. That's, that's, you know, a definite violation. All right. So we're going to be out of time here in just a minute. But before we wrap up, I want to go back to the issue of employee versus contractor where we started out and talk about uh, the fact that a lot of employers mischaracterize this. They get that wrong. Mm. They think it's a contractor and it's really an employee. And it's interesting. I saw an article that said mischaracterization was really not the right way to put it. Mischaracterization sounds kind of like, oh, oopsie, I just, you know, we, we messed up. But it it can also be characterized as payroll fraud, which sounds a whole lot more serious. Talk about some of the consequences if you get it wrong, get that distinction wrong. How does that come up? And I think you alluded to some of the ways it comes up, just the church bulletin or the competitors. But there are, I'm sure there are other ways it comes up. And what happens if you've got that wrong? Well, one thing that uh, the governments have done, boy, probably in the last dozen years, last 10 years, is they share a lot of information. The Internal Revenue Service shares information with the state of Illinois. The state of Illinois shares back with internal internal revenue. And all the states share the same information, particularly you know local states around here. I think that if, if fraud comes up and you haven't filed these payroll tax returns properly, or even in, in the situation if you are filing tax returns and not paying the proper payroll taxes, you can be assessed a 100% penalty in which you're responsible for not only paying the payroll taxes, but the penalty can be 100% or more of what the payroll taxes should have been. Wow. Uh, so, so, again, it can so be... So if you've got somebody who's been around for five or six years, who's been working kind of sort of full-time... That could be a lot. It could be. It could be a lot, and that's why you know one of the issues that we probably should talk about in the last few minutes that we have here is uh, you you do have the ability if you think you're doing things wrong, if you've been issuing 1099s to these employees and, and they really are employee to these people and they really are employees and should be on your payroll. There's a voluntary compliance process that you can go through with the IRS in which you could say to the IRS, "Oh, hey man, I I, I just found out that I'm doing things wrong. These people are really employees," and, and you could essentially confess to the IRS and and, and try and get it right. Now, one of the so is that a good idea? Well, you know, as much as I would like to say no, it probably is a good idea because one of the <laughs> one of the benefits of this is you're going to be doing it right. And, and if if you open yourself up to the IRS and, and express the, the the problem that's occurred and file the proper forms and disclose the information, everything that you've done in the past, they will not audit you for for anything related to that. that they will could they will come huge. in. It could be huge. They will come in and they will accept a ten percent of the tax payment that should have been required instead of the entire tax payment that should be required. And they won't charge you penalties and interest on that money. Wow. So if, if you want to do it right and want to get yourself on the right step, uh, that's a that's a process that you should that you should undertake or should at least look into so do, doing. Do a lot of companies do that? No, surprisingly no, because I don't think a lot of companies realize that it's out there. Oh. Yeah, and and uh, as we talked about, I think a lot of companies don't realize that they're really doing anything wrong. And, and I think education is more important than anything. And uh, if, if there were a, uh, a, a, a shop that was offered at, at the College of Lake County, you know, that would, uh, and there probably is, I don't know, that would instruct small businesses on the processes and things that they have to do and, and everyone attended it, I think it'd be great. 
But I think that a lot of people just don't understand and, and don't realize that they are doing something wrong. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the creep factor that I alluded to earlier is something that happens. I mean, you find a contractor, you find an individual who's really helpful and cost effective and seems to understand your business. And it's really natural to want that person to become more and more an integral part of the business as you grow your business. I think particularly for small businesses, that's, I've seen that a lot at least. And I, I think that happens. Oh, no, I, I agree entirely it happens. As you, as you find these people, you want them to become more involved in your business because they can provide services to yourself and to your customers and things. And uh, then that really turns them into employees. Yeah. Well, and there's certainly been a lot of this in the news. I don't know if this is an enforcement focus, but it certainly yeah. be, it seems to keep coming up in the news a lot. I mean, FedEx was in the news not too long ago with their drivers. Right. Uh, obviously, Uber got a lot of press in sure, California sure. claiming that these were independent drivers and they were saying, no, you know, you tell me exactly the processes to use and the software to use. You set the rates, all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. It really is a facts and, and circumstances case. And, and every state is different. I think every state looks at it in a different fo- fashion. Illinois, since we're in Illinois, Illinois is a state that really needs money. And, and I think that Illinois is, is going to be looking at compliance going forward more than uh, some other fiscally responsible states. And, and not to say that <laughs> Illinois isn't responsible, but I, living here my entire life, I sometimes question whether or not the money is being spent properly. And well, I know they, they need more. They certainly need it. That's for sure. Any final words of advice on best practices for small businesses? Well, I think we rather, you know, I think the most important thing is talk to your attorney when you're when you're starting the business and, and find an accountant that can that can give you advice and talk to them. It's worth spending a few dollars to make sure you're doing things right from the start rather than spending two or three years and worrying about it and, and not doing anything about it and then two or three years more pass and, and you're, you've dug yourself a big hole that might be difficult to claw, crawl out of. It's better to, to try and do things right from the start. That's great advice. So I want to say thank you to John you, and the Sartoris CPA Group for being our guest today. I hope our listeners have learned at least a little bit about some of the differences between employees and contractors and some of the consequences if they don't get it right. So, John, again, thanks for being our guest here today. Thanks for having me. So folks can learn more about this issue by visiting my website at www.globalocityservices.com or my legal website for scythialaw.com. You can also visit John's website. John, your website? Uh, my website is uh, sartoriscpagroup.com. All right. So be sure to join us next week when our guest will be Marsha McVicker and Mickey York. They are the co-principals of a company called Aaron Solutions. Their business that they've started, Aaron Solutions, runs errands of all sorts for busy individuals, and they have some great stories to tell. They'll share their successes, and they'll share some of the challenges. I promise it will be a great listen. So be sure to join us next week. And until then, folks, I'm Doris Nagel with The Savvy Entrepreneur, wishing all of you entrepreneurs out there happy entrepreneuring.